all of a sudden it dawned on me that I wasn't in my body anymore. And I go, what's happening? And a presence appeared and it said, you would call it dying. In just a moment, you're going to have to make a decision. If you go on into the light, you will not be returning to your body. Hello, and welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host. Thank you so much for joining me wherever you are in the world right now. Our guest today, I'm so excited to talk with and share with you, is Bob Bloom. He was given a choice when he died. Bob Bloom had a profound near-death experience, NDE, and prior to his NDE, he didn't want to be alive because the weight of his emotions often felt like more than he could bear. When he died, spirit drew him into a vision wherein he found himself immersed in a field of possibilities and that changed everything. He is the author of The Empath, Falling in Love with the Heart of the Child Within. Bob, welcome to Passion Harvest. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Well, thank you for having me here, Louisa. I really mm -hmm. appreciate it. Um, I heard about you through somebody that had had, had a near-death experience, and they put me in touch with you. And that unfolded when I was just shy of my 20th birthday. I was in the Marine Corps at the time, and we had gone through a day of just incredibly brutal training. And I'm going to kind of gloss over this near-death experience because that really wasn't the penultimate moment in my life. It, it informed me of a few things, but like the pendulum moment where there was a before and an after, that actually took place about 20 years later. So we'll get to that next. Um, but it was a really brutal day. When I got home, I was, I was dead tired. I did not feel good at all. I walked in the door and when my girlfriend saw me, she was shocked. She goes, you look terrible. I said, I feel terrible. I, I'm just going to bed. And have you ever had that experience where you lay down to go to bed and you're just so tired that when your body hits the mattress, it like hugs you, feels so good? Yes. Well, that's what it felt when I <laughs> first laid down, right? I first laid down, I was like, oh, this feels so good. But then it was like I fell right through the mattress. And the next thing I knew, I was soaring through, I, I was soaring through this. It, it seems like a tunnel, but it's really not. It's just that I was moving so fast that it kind of gives you that effect. And off in the distance, there was this incredible golden orb of light. And just, it, it was more like moving towards a star than moving towards like a flashlight. It was huge. And I felt like I was moving faster than the speed of light. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that I wasn't in my body anymore. And I go, what's happening? And a presence appeared and it said you would call it dying in just a moment you're going to have to make a decision if you go on into the light you will not be returning to your body and now you might think that would be alarming but it didn't alarm me at all because for the first time in my life i was totally at peace and a better way to say that i was, I was completely pain free there was no experience of pain whatsoever and it, it was just such a wonderful feeling of well-being. And this orb was radiating this amazing light that also felt really good. And in the next moment, I was I was given a taste of my life. Like some people say they have near or past life reviews. For me, it was more like getting handed a, a glass of water that had the meaning of my life in it. And I tasted it and it just tasted unfinished. And in the next moment, I, I heard a voice and it, it seemed to emanate from somewhere outside of myself, but I recognized it as my own. And it said, no, I have to go back. I have way too much left to accomplish. So when I heard that, it kind of felt like my soul maybe had answered on my behalf. I don't really know, but I intended to stop that momentum going into the, the orb. And it, it took a while. It was really difficult to stop that speeding. And all, but when it did happen, it was almost like rubber bands finally had stretched to their limits and they just snapped me back into my body. And what I remembered most of anything, most of all, was the way my fingers felt when they popped back in and the way my lips and nose felt when they popped back in. And I hit my body hard enough that it sat me bolt upright in bed. And I'm looking around my room and it was just, it was eerily quiet. 
But the moment I was back in my body, I was back in the pain. And and I I let my hand or my head flop into my hand because I couldn't believe I made a decision to return. I was so at first I was really sad about it. And then I was really, really angry about it uh, because I couldn't. Why would anybody come back to experience life in a human body? But I did. So what, what that changed for me was three things. The first was that I, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was a spiritual being having a, having a human adventure, not the other way around. Um, and I would never fear death again. It, it just never played a role in my life at all. But the other thing was, you know, I had started considering suicide when I was 10. And, you know, all through my teens, it was that way. And what this did was I knew that I came back for a reason, even though I didn't know what the reason was. And I'm kind of a stubborn person, I guess, maybe stubborn or willful or persistent, determined, depending upon how you want to say it. And so I wouldn't let myself quit. No matter how hard it got, I wouldn't let myself quit. And my, my 20s were the same as my teens. It, it was a horrible time. It was a miserable time. And then finally, in my late teens, or my late 20s, I met a man named James Barnett, who was the first person, actually, I have to backtrack just a little bit, a few years earlier. So at 26 years of age, I came home from work one day to an empty apartment. Everything had been moved out, and my wife and my two children had left. And I was shocked. Um it was it was devastating because that was the first home I'd known since I'd left my parents' home before joining the service. And there was all I was left was a chair and a few books that were scattered on the floor. So I picked up one of the books and it was Shirley MacLaine's Dancing in the Light. And when I read that book, I suddenly realized that I wasn't alone in the world. I I wasn't the only one who, who perceived life that way. And it was such an eye opener. And it really kicked off a journey for me of self-understanding. I, I had to know more. And I, I became a voracious reader and I started meditating and I met up with groups. And, and then, like I say, in my late 20s, I met a man named James Barnett, who was an expert in grief recovery. And James taught me a couple of exercises that I'm not going to go through right now because they'll be too lengthy. But one of them was inner child work. And another one was a way into the quiet space when you're meditating. So I, he showed me how to do those. And I practiced daily every day for at least a half hour for the next 10 years. Now, what that daily practice did, it was a, as much as anything, a presence practice. So for me, everything kind of came together my 38th year on the planet when um, I woke up one day. At that time, I had built a life that I thought, this is the kind of life you build to lead a happy, productive, compelling, meaningful life. And when I woke up this morning, I had the house to myself, which was really unusual. I lived with my girlfriend. We'd been together a few years. We had five kids between us. I had two. She had three. And I had the whole house to myself, which was really unusual. So I got out of bed. I wandered it into the kitchen, made myself some coffee. And then after I got the coffee, we'd been in this new house for a year, just had finished furnishing it. So I just decided to walk around and start appreciating everything. And I went from room to room to room. And when I finally got into the family room, and, and this house was gorgeous. The family room had 15-foot soaring ceilings and floor-to-ceiling fireplace with two huge windows that looked out over a crystal blue pool. And as I'm looking out there, all of a sudden I realized you know, as beautiful and lovely as all this is, this isn't it. And I had no idea what it was. So I just said a little prayer. I just kind of said to spirit, what now? And three weeks later, I got, I got fired from my high paying job. And I was ecstatic on the day that it happened because I realized, okay, I'd asked for change. This is the beginning of change. And I had plenty of money. So I took the last four months of 1996 off. And during that time, I gave myself anything that I wanted. I played golf every day. I went to all the football games. I took my girlfriend on trips to the beach. We did stuff with the kids. The year before, we had a house fire. 
So we didn't have a Christmas. So this year I made it extra special for all the kids. And it was just, it was such a beautiful experience that by the end of December, and it's strange that I still remember this, but I sat down to meditate. I looked at my clock. It was eight o'clock on December 28th, 1996. And when I got in that quiet space, I finally just said, I'm tired of being afraid. I don't care what you do to me. I have to know what's possible. Show me. And of course, I was speaking to spirit. And that was all it was that day. Just It was a complete surrender. And then the very next day, uh, again, it was about the same time at night. And I got in that quiet space. And all of a sudden, I hear spirit say, you and I are one. And as soon as that happened, all these voices in my head start that's crazy. That's nuts. That's blasphemy. All the voices from my past. And I just watched. And once they quieted down, Spirit said a second time, you and I are one. And the same thing. All those voices just started screaming. And I just watched them. You know, that's crazy. That's nuts. This is ridiculous. Blah, blah, blah. And then they quieted down. And then for a third time, I heard the same thing. You and I are one. This time, ask those voices to identify themselves and follow them to their source. So I did. The voices would come up. I go, who are you? And at first it was comical because they said, I'm you. And, and I'm observing them. So I know they're not me. And when I asked them to take them me to their source, every one of them just started disappearing into nothingness. And all of a sudden I was in this incredibly quiet space where I still had my individuated identity, but I also had, was aware of the totality of everything. And so I asked Spirit, I said, well, if you and I are one, then why don't I perceive the way you perceive? How come I'm not omniscient and omnipresent? And Spirit said, you can have that right now. Just say the word and it will be so. And in that moment, I was enveloped by this incredible matrix of light. And it it extended well beyond what I could see. And when I looked up at it, I, I was in awe. And I realized right away that it was like a map of all the possible stories that a human being could possibly live. And not even that a, that a spiritual being could live. And when, when I saw it, it was involuntary. But the, the words, I looked up and I go, oh, it's like we tell ourselves a giant story buy into it, hook, line, and sinker, and then we get to live out the stories we tell. When I, and in that moment, I had a complete change of heart because I knew full well I didn't want my story to end. I just didn't like the one I was living. And so I asked Spirit, okay, well, so how do I change my story if I don't like the one that I'm living now? And right away I saw something, but I didn't know what it meant. But it was like this huge cylinder. Have you ever seen the setup of a piston inside a cylinder? Right? Like in a car engine, the piston goes back and forth inside the cylinder. Vague, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> vaguely, okay. So if you have a closed cylinder and you push a piston into it, the more you push that piston in, the more pressure builds up inside the cylinder. And eventually, no matter how much pressure you push, or how hard you try to force it shut, you just can't because too much pressure has built up inside. But if a valve appears on the end of the cylinder and you open it, you can close that piston with one little finger and almost no energy. So I realized it was kind of telling me that this, this is way more about letting things go than it is about picking anything up. You don't have to believe anything. In fact, if you let go of most of the beliefs you have about things, you'll be far happier in life, just, just living life in the moment. I don't know any of this at this point. So the, the first lesson then transpired about two days later. I can't remember, two or three days later. And I was at home. I was writing. I was writing a business plan for a new venture I was, I was working on. And my girlfriend's nine-year-old boy kept racing in front of my office door, kind of like um, Tom Cruise in Risky Business. We were sliding across the floor and he was doing, waving his arms and making a nuisance of himself, in my opinion. And so 
I, I, I looked over and said, not now, Jake, I'm, I'm trying to write a business plan. I don't see that as like he slumps and he's all sad when he walks away, but he does. Comes back about 15 minutes later and does the same thing. And this goes on most of the morning until I lose my patience and I'm about to turn and just really tear into him. And I hear my inner guidance say, hey, Bob, this would be a great time for you to learn patience. Why don't you let Jake be the nine-year-old for a little while and you be the adult? And it was just a feather sledgehammer. It was like, boom, because I realized, wow, I'm expecting a nine-year-old boy to be adult-like, which really is very childish on my part. And that's really was the first lesson in, in, in patience was it's nothing more than stop to stop and pause and to empathize with the present moment or who's ever in the present moment. And most of us think that patience is really hard, but it's the easiest thing in the world. It literally is, here's how easy it is. So if in any moment you find yourself feeling a little bit upset, you can bring your attention and awareness right behind your, underneath and behind your eyes and smell the air. Because now what happens is since the body is always present and the breath is always present, the moment I bring my awareness there, my awareness is present. And the moment I start smelling, I bring more senses online because I'm feeling and I'm selling, uh, smelling. And if you actually do that now while we're talking, you'll find yourself feeling a little more present just by doing that. And then the next step is, let's say that, okay, the energy is pretty high here, right? Still feeling like my feathers are a bit ruffled, is after I've taken one or two breaths, I just remind myself that I don't have all the answers. And that's not too hard, is it? Nobody has all the answers. And so what this does is this brings the mind online too. Now mind, body, and spirit are all present. And the next thing I do is I just listen inwardly while I still am aware of my breath. And I can be listening for guidance, but mostly what I want to do is I want to tune into my body and the feelings and sensations within my body and then just breathe. And that, in, that entire thing we just went through is I call stepping into presence. And it, it, that was really the, that was really what I need. That's really what spirit showed me how to do. And it took a long time um, because it was so foreign to anything that I'd ever been exposed to before is probably a good way to say it but it was really that simple i just i stop and pause bring my awareness and attention right behind my eyes uh, smell the air okay bob we don't have all the answers here nobody does right and i'll tune inside to whatever i'm feeling and i'll make peace with whatever i'm feeling whether i like the way it feels or not without making anybody right or wrong for feeling the way that i do so that was that's eight years worth of spiritual training in three minutes, right? So now let's fast forward eight years down the road. I've, I've grown a lot. I've, I'm more present. I'm more aware, but I'm still driven by a lot of misperceptions. Across the board, driven by a lot of misperceptions. And in 2004, I worked for a company where um, they had what was called a 200 car club. I worked for an auto brokerage and there was only a small percentage of people who on an annual basis would deliver more than 200 cars. So I set that as my goal and I missed it the first year. And so I, I set it again the second year. And the second year, when it got to be December 1st, I was almost there. I mean, it was, it was, it was a no brainer that I was going to hit it, but instead of feeling good, Instead of feeling celebratory, I was nervous. I had anxiety. I felt terrible until the 17th of the month when I finally hit that number and I felt ecstatic. You know, it just, it was a huge accomplishment. And the company sends out a company-wide email and people are congratulating me and uh, I'm patting myself on the back. And the next day I still felt high as a kite, but by, by the second day, about the middle of the day, I'm walking down the hallway and I notice I'm not on that high anymore. It's just another day at work. It's just another day in life. And I go, 
why was that so important to me to to accomplish that and when i when i thought all of a sudden i remembered oh my god accomplishment is what was rewarded when i was a kid that's what's got you love and affection and attention and praise which were all the things i really wanted not accomplishing something but that human contact that human affection that human nurturing and in that moment i realized oh i don't value i don't value accomplishment at all there's a bunch of things i value far more and that was really my introduction i'd been introduced to it before kind of in steps along the way but that's when it crystallized in my mind that i really need to know what i want and when i say i really need to know what i want i'm not talking about the objects of my desire i need to take one step beyond that i need to i need to look i need to imagine that i actually have the object of my desire and then i ask myself how is my experience of life different now than before what is it that i'm experiencing now that i have this that i that i didn't experience before whatever it is whatever that why is that's what you want and then the cool thing about that, that that's a compass. Because the moment you feel something inside and you have a felt knowledge of something, it becomes a compass. Because every decision can be weighed against that feeling. You know, like if I think about doing this, does it pull me away from that feeling or does it reinforce that feeling? And so that's how I began making my decisions. And then a year later, somebody did something really mean that turned into one of the most amazing things of my life and it was a, a a woman that i dated and we only dated for a few weeks and then she ghosted me and about three weeks later i was sitting in my office and lo and behold she appears in my doorway and you know can we talk and i, I really didn't want to talk because she hurt my feelings pretty bad but slowly but surely she kind of flirted her way back into my heart and i'm sorry i don't even know why i ghosted you but she goes i kind of felt like i lived in a fishbowl because you're so good at reading me that i i almost felt stripped naked when i was around you but i really really like you and i really like to try this again and so uh, i don't know she goes come on over to the house tonight let me make you dinner i'm not asking for any type of commitment let's just reconnect and so i said okay and i walk her outside and she gives me a kiss and then she walks to her car and puts her hand in her door handle and as soon as she did that it was like a dr jekyll and mr hyde thing because she pulled away from her car door her, the look on her face changed she turned around she goes never mind about this this is never going to work and i said what she was us you and me bobby it's never going to work I go, so what did you come down here for? Did you just come down here to toy with my emotions? And in a really mocking, snide way, she goes, you know, Bobby, pain can take you to God as fast as anything else. And I was like, I, I mean, she just spun me. And I went to my office and I packed it up and I went home and I sat down and, and I was stirred up good. And, and I thought to myself, why do I keep doing this to myself? Because it wasn't the first relationship that hadn't worked out. And I, I had experienced a lot of pain in my life. And I was wondering, why do I keep doing this to myself? And when I checked in, I mean, my body hurt. I was upset emotionally. Everything hurt. And, and then all of a sudden, I remembered what she said. She goes, you know, Bob, pain can take you to God as fast as anything else. So I thought, I'm going to embrace this pain. I'm going to say, take me to your source. And it was like riding a wave. And it, it took me into this space where my, my guidance came up and says, what does, or it said, what does the pain give you? And when I felt inside, it was, I, I got angry because I said, pain, all it gives me is pain. It's pain, 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 pain. And then spirit says, well, what do you know because of the pain? And I was still really angry. So I kind of snidely said, well, I know that I'm alive because dead people don't feel things. 
And Spirit said, when else do you feel alive, fully alive? And the first image that came to my mind was snow skis perched over a steep slope. You know, right before I'd be bombing downhill. And in that moment, it became clear that there were only two times in my life that I felt fully alive. And those were during moments of extreme pain and extreme thrill. And that was the moment, two things happened out of that really bizarre experience. And one was that from that point forward, I didn't run away from pain anymore. I, I didn't go looking for it, but when I felt it, I embraced it and had it take me to its source and to share with me whatever message it had for me. And that made it, it wasn't just emotional pain or physical pain. It's all the pains we have in life. It's all the challenges and obstacles we have in life. So I just began embracing every challenge and obstacle that was, was in my life. And that changed everything. Um, because I didn't, I didn't realize I had done this with pain. You know, I kind of held it at, at, at arm's length. And it was, it was really a matter of what I wanted to do was I wanted to fill in all those gaps between thrill and pain. And that included boredom and anxiety and restlessness and excitement and thrills, you know, the whole gamut. And, and that's kind of how I feel today, um, Luis, is, you know, that, that space has been filled in. So no matter what presents itself in the moment, I can enjoy it in one fashion or another. So that's kind of the long view of the story, mm -hmm. the overview of the story. Oh, I loved how you explain. I mean, I loved how you explain all of that. Yes, we we push away pain, and it's so nice how you explain. We have these cyclic reoccurring patterns, um, but we often don't dive or truthful or dive deep into why is this happening? Why is this reoccurring? And I I love how you get so in touch with your body. People say your body is your teacher in some way. Um, but, it, I mean, wonderful, wonderful, well, not always pleasant <laughs> experiences. I, but life isn't always pleasant. Um, yes. And, but without the unpleasant, like, without the struggle, like, the, the part of achievement I do like is doing the hard thing, right? Um, how good it feels to do the hard thing. And... It's so different when you embrace that versus, oh, I got to do the hard thing. Oh, I get to do the hard thing. Right. It's just a different it's way so of meeting the moment. Yeah, yeah. We avoid, all, well, I do as well, gosh, avoid the, the painful experiences. But, I mean, for some of those, I'm just thinking of the audience that say, well, you know, I've asked my intuition or my guidance or source or spirit I'm not receiving the answer. What do I do? What I know you explained it, but what is your advice? Okay. <clears throat> I'm not receiving answers as a belief, isn't it? Maybe it's something else. And that leads me into something called surrender. Uh, we touched on it earlier. Surrender is nothing more than reminding yourself that you don't have all the answers. You know, most of the time in my early life, I walked around as if I did. And meaning I can't take in any and I can't take in any new information. So surrender is a key in any situation. And it takes a lot of form. So I can remind myself I don't have all the answers. And surrender is the only truth I know. I don't have all the answers. That's the only truth I know. I really don't know anything else for sure. Um, it can be like when you have a worrisome thought, just remind yourself I'm willing to be wrong about that. And the same thing could be true when you say I'm not receiving an answer. Oh, I'm willing to be wrong about that. What am I feeling? What am I sensing? Because whatever I'm feeling and sensing is the answer. It may not be a voice. It, it, it may be an impression. It may be a sense. It may be something visual. Everybody's got to learn how to connect with their own inner gifts and their own inner resources. And I guess I'm going to back up here a little bit. 
The first step is always patience, right? Stopping and pausing and connecting the breath. Yeah, pay, I was just and about to say patience. <laughs> stopping and pausing and connecting the breath. Surrender. And then acceptance, which is making peace with whatever I'm feeling, whether I like the way it feels or not, and without making anybody right or wrong for feeling the way that I do, and that includes me. So it really is a patience process, right? A presence process is a patience process and to let things unfold as they will. And when you're in that situation is to notice your own anxiety about not having what you think you should have. One of my favorite lines is, well, you're just shooting all over yourself. My daughter loves that one too. I go, at least it's, She'll be really upset about something. They go, oh, it sounds like you're shooting all over yourself. She goes, oh, my God, Dad, I am. <laughs> and we do that a lot. So it's it's stepping outside of that zone. Now, here's a, here's a recent embarrassing story I can share with you. It's only embarrassing. You know, meh. <laughs> so uh, it was a third of this month. And I haven't been triggered for a long time. Um. And I had been working for three days on, on a couple of different platforms, a couple of different apps, trying to put up a website. Some, some of them that said, you know, how simple and intuitive and easy they were. And they were expensive and complicated, anything but simple and easy. So the first company, I had to go through the process of canceling and getting my money back. And then I got to a second one. And there were just some really simple things that they made really not simple. And so I was... I was frustrated with that process and just breathing through it. And on the sixth of this month was my a big birthday for my daughter. It was an important one that she started talking about a year ago and wanted to make all these plans. And, and then wanted to make all these plans for her on her own. And then was disappointed because she couldn't please everybody and nothing seemed to be working out. And, and finally she came to me and goes, I'm, I'm not going to plan anything for my birthday. And I go, all right. Now, as her dad, what I hear is she's not going to plan anything for her birthday. What she meant was, I don't want anybody planning anything for my birthday. Well, I didn't hear that. She didn't say it. And so um, now it's two days before her birthday earlier this week, and I'm distracted. My mind is here focused, and she's off to my right in the kitchen. And she comes and she goes, hey, dad, I just learned that a friend of mine is coming at noon on my birthday. And, and I had made plans for her birthday at noon to take her out to a nice lunch with her grandmother. And, and so what I'm hearing is you and grandma aren't important enough for me to show up on my own birthday for, even though you spent six months trying to plan something nice and sweet for me to make my birthday happy. I got triggered. I got so angry. And, and, and even though my mind was split, I see what's happening. I see myself being angry now I, I didn't I didn't say mean things I just expressed the anger that I was feeling and that hurt her feelings and she walked away upset and I walked away upset and then I went and sat down and I just said I did exactly what I just said I connected my breath I don't have all the answers I tuned in and that's when I realized that I'd been triggered because my body was an incredible physical pain. So when, when we are triggered, when we're connected to the body, we can feel that pain. For me, when I was younger, I typically would almost not feel that pain because it was so constant that I got really good at avoiding it. But I, I felt the pain in my body and, and that told me, okay, Bob, there's something here to look at. There's, there's something for you to recover here. And when I looked inside, I thought that, you know, I've heard this before. I thought that I'd done this particular recovery work before, but I hadn't. It turned out to be the adolescent me who thought they were still broken because I heard it say, what's wrong with me? It's like, oh, there you are. I go, who are you? I, I could just like kind of sense and feel oh, this is the adolescent me, the one who really believed that they were there was something wrong with them, right? Trying to do something really, really nice and it backfires. What's wrong with me? And so I said, oh, 
sweetheart, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. You try to do something really, really nice. And sometimes things go sideways. That, that just happens. But it was the recovery work was you're, you're not broken. You're basically, you're beautiful, which is one of the last chapters of the book that I recently wrote. Um, and I was able to calm that aspect of myself down. And of course, as I'm calming that aspect down, that calmness is somewhat washing over me. But the thing is, when you get triggered, you get whatever got triggered releases all of those same chemicals as when those memories were first formed. And you have that same experience. And I just remember in my youth, how hard it was to get my body and nervous system to calm down again. But I was able to say, well, what do I really want? And the most important thing was, well, I want to restore the relationship with my daughter. I mean, regardless of whether what she did hurt me or not, it, it, it wasn't her fault. And she didn't deserve the reaction that she got from me, even though she hurt me, right? She, she needs to feel safe and accepted and all these other things. So I, I went to her and I said, you know, hey, I apologize for what happened. You didn't deserve that. I say, I, I'm not excusing you for the fact that you did hurt me deeply. I I made some really special plans for you. So that really hurts, but you do as you please and you do what you need to do. But I just want you to know I love you and I'm sorry. And, and she accepted that and that felt really good to her. And But as I was sitting down in the middle of all that angst and, and pain, I just said a little prayer to spirit. I said, I give you this to make something beautiful, beautiful out of it, right? Whatever, whatever you want to make of this, you make something beautiful out of it because my mind doesn't know what anything is or what anything means, but my spirit and my heart do. And so one of my daughter's friends showed up on her birthday, made these special plans for her, and Alicia broke those plans too. And then her friend had kind of the same reaction that I did. And later on that day, when I went and talked to my daughter, she was like, okay, dad, I get it. I get why you were so upset. And it kind of came full circle in this little short period of 48 hours. And it solidified our relationship instead of creating cracks and chips in it. So that was really a beautiful thing. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, thank you for sharing that. And communication is so important. Um, I, ju I just want to briefly touch on it. It's, it's interesting how you, you've been speaking about this whole, through this episode, what we want and what we need on a soul or on a, a growth level is sometimes often different. <laughs> mm -hmm. Boy, is it ever. Yeah. Uh, my first mentor used to say a lot, he goes, Bob, I always know why I do things and why I go places, but I rarely know the purpose. And I was just writing about that the other day. It is, I can say that about the last 28 years really is, I think I'm going to do one thing and it turns out to be something completely different. When was it? It was um, 2000, no, 1999. I got interested in becoming a firewalk facilitator. And somebody introduced me to a man that lived up on Orcas Island who could certify people doing firewalks. So I called him up and I said, hey, I'd love to come up and learn and be certified as a firewalk facilitator. Is that that's something that you could do? And he was very noncommittal. And he goes, well, you know, I don't know you. I'd, I'd like to get to know you a little bit. But so if you get up here, give me a call and we'll get together. So no commitment whatsoever. But I decided to take my kids on a two-month summer vacation up the coast of California, and we finished. The halfway point was three weeks on Orcas Island. Beautiful spot, by the way. It's in the Puget Sound off of Washington State. It, 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 it's like one of the most gorgeous, gorgeous natural settings anywhere. And when I got there, I called him up, and I went over to his house, and we introduced ourselves and made small talk. And then we got to the business at hand, and he said, what do you know about breath work? I go, nothing really. Well, the reality was I'd heard about it before and I just thought it was stupid. So I'm like, I breathe. <laughs> and of course, 
Breathwork isn't about moving air, it's about moving energy. So he went to his bookshop and he got a book off the shelf, which he had written. He handed it to me. He goes, I want you to read this, practice for a week, and we'll get back after a week. I said, okay. So I'm at this campsite. I mean, it's different kinds of pine trees and greenery and uh, the, the beautiful sparkling sound out there. And it was the sun, the sky would glow till 11, 1130 at night. I mean, it was just spectacularly gorgeous. Well, after three days of practicing breath work, I began to notice that I had synced with the spirit of the island because I could I could see and feel the island kind of breathing with me, that little, you know, that in and out type of thing. And it was like, oh my God, there's, there's, I had just touched the surface, but I realized, oh my God, this is, I, this is something I need to get good at. And so, you know, then we got together again. He did uh, put me through the facilitator firewalk training. We had a firewalk and it was, that was an amazing experience, but I thought I was taking my kids on a summer vacation. Spirit had another idea. Spirit said, you need to learn how to do breath work, idiot. So it took me up there because I was too stubborn just to go do it on my own. But that wasn't the only unexpected turn. Is at the time, my daughter was 15 years old. My son was 13. And we just, I bought a trailer to take him up the coast. So we were going to do killer, trailer camping along the way. And the, the first day out, we're all excited. You guys ready to go? Yeah, 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 we're ready to go. I, I pull out of the driveway and the curb is steeper than I think it is. The trailer bounces and I hear this thud. And I'm like, uh-oh. So I go around, I look in the trailer and realize that the microwave has popped off the counter and died on the floor. So I throw it out, I get back in the cab. I say, well, it looks like we got our accident out of the way. So should be smooth sailing from here on in. And everything was as we went across the Arizona desert into California, we're 14 miles into California. And I hear another really loud, like wham. And I'm like, oh my God. And I look at my side view mirror just in time to see the driver's side tire from the trailer fly by me on my left, turn right and go about a hundred yards out into the desert. I'm like, and of course, the, the trailer is now leaning sideways and it's showering sparks behind it. So I pull off safely to the side of the road and it's it's not going anywhere. The axle is broken. The wheel has sheared itself off. It damaged the side of the, the trailer pretty good. But I, I happen to stop right by an emergency roadside phone. I mean, there wouldn't be another one for miles and miles, but there it was right there. I picked it up. I call emergency services, we get it towed, but we had reservations for a week at Newport Beach on an RV park right on the sand there. Well, that's not going to work anymore because it's going to take them a week to get the trailer fixed. So I call my sister who lives near Irvine, see if she can put us up for the, the night. And then we're going to go down to San Clemente in California the next day, which was a city I'm pretty familiar with, to see if we can't find lodging down by the pier. And next morning we go down there. There's five or six hotels right down there. And so I tell my kids, well, you guys go check on these two. I'll check on the other ones and just tell them what happened. The repairs ate up all of my emergency budget plus more of the rest of the budget. So we've only got $500 to spend. I said, we may not be able to find a place, guys. That's not much money for this location. Like, okay, all right. So. They go check on a couple hotels. The first three I check on, there's no luck. And we meet back up and they're like, no luck, dad. These places are way more expensive than that. And I go, well, there's one more place left to check out. And it was a apartment building that had been converted into a seaside resort. Um, it was casual, but really nice. And I'm figuring, yeah, probably gonna get the same thing here, but I just had this feeling. And so we walk in there and there's a, a young gal behind the counter and I, I tell her what happened and she goes, well, how much do you have to spend? I said, I only have $500. I don't know if you can help us out or not. She goes, I'll be right back. She goes around a corner and then comes back about 15 minutes later. She goes, I got great news for you. We have one room available 
it's a one bedroom condo. Um, I, I can't discount the weekend rate. So they have to pay the full rate for the weekend, <clears throat> but you can stay the weekdays for free and the total cost will be about $560 including tax. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. But now here's the kicker. So it's, it's already been like these synchronicities are happening and I'm, I'm noticing all these synchronicities. But my daughter found a little coffee shop on the road, on the, the main road right down below our hotel. And every, well, I should say, every day they got a, a daily allowance. They could spend as however they want. It was kind of a learn how to use your money wisely. You know, do it wisely or suffer the consequences because that's all you're getting for today. And she would always go down to the street, go to the coffee shop, order herself a frappe, sit on the sidewalk and just take in the beach view, you know, the beautiful people, the beautiful weather, the beautiful sights and sounds. And on the third or fourth day we were there, she came up to me afterwards. She came back up and she goes, I love it here, dad. I would love to live here. And I go, well, you know what? Set your mind to it, Leisha. If that's something you really want, it may very well happen. That's all that was said. I don't think anything has changed. Well, lo and behold, one year later, she had almost dropped out of school her freshman year. She'd gotten in with the wrong crowd. But from that point forward, she got almost straight A's through high school and then went on and got dual degrees at a university, again, getting all A's and B's, an outstanding student. And she's just a beautiful woman now. But who knew that that series of unexpected events, the purpose was to change her mind. So I took them there to vacation. I took them there to have a good time. And Spirit said, well, we can use this for a higher purpose. And, and she's one of the most beautiful human beings on the planet. So what a blessing for everybody. What a blessing and a miracle. Oh, that's mm -hmm. a that's beautiful, beautiful experience. Um, Bob, your book, uh, An Empath Falling in Love with the Heart of the, a Child. Um, we were speaking before at the show about empaths. Is it a lot harder? I mean, we're... I'm a people pleaser and sometimes I always don't do what I want <laughs> and 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 it takes me out of touch with spirit how does one traverse through life being an empath okay we're we're walking on eggshells here yeah <laughs> I'm going to say something a little controversial that's okay, okay. <laughs> just remember these are generalities not specific yeah men tend to be less agreeable than women now, when you're talking about agreeability, you're not talking about agreeing with what people say or disagreeing with what people say. It has to do with on the disagreeable on the disagreeability side, you'll stand up for yourself. On an agreeability side, you'll give yourself away. Does that sound familiar? Like you sacrifice yourself, you martyr yourself to please other people. And so for most women, it's taking themselves in the equation is really important to, to know what you need and to give yourself what you need first. That's a hard thing for women to do, generally speaking. For men, it's taking everybody else into consideration, right? There's a, there's a balance point in the middle where we include others in our decision-making, but we don't exclude ourselves. And that's a, that's for a lot of people, that's a lifelong process, right? Because there's a payoff for giving people what they want. And you should really look at what is the payoff, right? Um, and there's a cost. So, you know, it's one of those things don't instinctually do what you have always done, because if you do, you'll always get what you always got. So really look at it from, all right, well, what do I need? What would please me? What would please them? What am I willing to do? And then what's the what's the cost and what's the benefit? It's but it's not a thinking thing. It's a it's an intuitive thing. It's an empathy thing, right? I empathize with it's myself. A I empathize with the other person, and then I choose. It's so true. We know and we feel it. Yes, I it's beautifully explained. Yeah. So it's um, and that's really what for me this process has it been about i want to talk about empath just for a second no that's perfect because i was going to say is there anything else you want to talk about that i haven't asked you on a, yeah, on a final note um, <laughs> so 
I've I've heard varying things, anywhere from one to two percent of the population to four percent of the population are empathic. And for people who aren't empathic, it will make no sense to them whatsoever. They don't perceive life this way. Now, the biggest challenge for empaths is that, and actually all human beings, is that we all tend to believe that others perceive life the same way as we do. And the reality is nobody else perceives life the same way as we do. We all perceive it either somewhat or remarkably differently. Okay, So one of the biggest challenges for me growing up is like as an empath, number one, we don't absorb other people's energies. That's not true. What we do is resonate with other people's energies. So if we have that pain inside of us, yeah, boy, do we ever feel that, right? But we also feel joy. We tend to ignore the joy because that's easy, but we know, we remember the pain. And at some point, you have to learn to differentiate between what's yours and what's somebody else's. And for me, that really didn't begin happening until I got into my 20s. And I don't even know how I came around to it, but I, I would start saying to myself, like I would wake up and I just feel this overwhelming dread and it didn't make sense. It didn't fit the present moment. It didn't fit my life. I didn't know where it was coming from. And I would say a little reminder to, my, a reminder to myself, I, this doesn't belong to me. Now, I, I kind of say it as a statement, but it was really a question to spirit. It was, this doesn't belong to me, right? And I would just hear a yes or a no. A no was no, it doesn't belong to you. And I would just shut it. I would disregard it totally. If it was yes, then that was something for me to look at. So that was really the first part of, you know, this whole discussion about boundaries. I don't believe in boundaries. I believe in saying yes and no, which is what establishes our boundaries, right? You need to know what you say yes to, you need to know what you say no to. And that's especially true of an empath because if an empath doesn't do self-care, they're gonna burn themselves out. They're gonna be miserable almost all the time. So. That's the that's the tough part of being empathic. Is you're experiencing things from a feeling standpoint at such a deep level. It's so pain is really painful, but joy is really joyful. So it's there, it's a balanced type of thing that you you need to do for yourself. And then the next step is. And this may be even harder is to embody, right? Because the empath doesn't really want to be in the body. That's where all the pain is. So for those who are listening, Google that, you know, embodiment exercises, presence practices, whatever it takes to have me come back into my own body and be in the body. Because if things are right, the body's the teacher, the heart's the temple, and this is the servant. We've got this stuff backwards right so i listen to my body my body is my instructor and then all these inner gifts because if you're empathic you have psychic gifts as well one of the four or typically all of the four or some of the four so for me i'm i was first clairaudient and claircognizant those were obvious to me um you know i would hear the guidance but i could talk to somebody for a minute or two and i would know things about them they they couldn't they, they just didn't believe i could know that talking to them for one or two minutes. And of course, that ability was honed. I was in sales for 40 years. So people, how do you close so many deals? Blue, I go, I just listen. I listen intently. I listen to what they're not saying. Um, and then the next part is to trust your inner gifts. And that's hard because the brain keeps telling us otherwise, right? We have all these thoughts that we're identifying with, like, for example, what I just talked about earlier this month, where there was still a part of me believed that there's something wrong with me. Well, I was identified with it, right? But it, so it wasn't until I stepped back to look where I disidentified from it and just looked. And so you're going to spend a lot of time doing that, right? Just slowly, step by step, learning to trust that those inner gifts. And the way it really happened for me was. I told you I met my mentor in my late 20s. The same week I met him, my, my inner guidance made itself fully known to me. And the way that happened was I, I sat down to meditate one night and I started seeing this vision. 
And it was of a man walking down a gravel street. It was a beautiful location. I get down to a T intersection. I turn right. This 1920-something Ford pickup truck drives by, kicking up dust. And I realize I'm a newspaper man there to do a story about a purported witch. And when I get to her place of business, I see, well, she's not a witch. This is an apothecary. She's an herbalist. She's got herbs hanging from everywhere. And she's at the middle table putting something together. When she turns around, I see it's a friend of mine in my current life who since that time, her nickname is now Witchy Woman, <laughs> which is really bizarre. But while I was in that scene, I wondered, well, where am I? And I hear Vilnius. I go, okay. So the next day I go down to the library. This is back when they had card catalogs. I go through the card catalogs. I see, okay, Vilnius, it's real. There's a city in Lithuania called Vilnius. So I get the Dewey Decimal Code and go to that stack in the library. At random, I pull a book off the shelf. I open it up. And there's a map on either side. And it's a map of Lithuania before 1936 and after 1936. And before 1936, the city was named Vilnius. After 1936, it was named Vilnius. The Germans had renamed it. And so I'd seen the 1920-something pickup truck. So I realized, okay, so it's telling me something. I have no idea what it's telling me. It's just frustrating because I want things to make sense. I want answers. Next night, start having a vision again. A Native American comes to see me. Again, it's, it's the difference between the dream and the vision is the visions are so real. And he comes to see me, like takes me by the hand as if I'm the darling children from Peter Pan up in the air, takes me down to where they live. And I see where they live from overhead. And I see him. And, and I ask, so what nation are you from? And he goes, Chiricahua. Well, I'd never heard of Chiricahua before. So back down to the library the next day, I looked it up, sure enough, Chiricahua. I go to that stack in the library. At random again, I pull a book off the shelf, I open it up, and on this page is a picture of the Native American I saw sitting next to a Geronimo by a campfire, and on this side is the overhead view I saw in the vision. That's amazing. And it's like, okay, this is really weird, and it still makes no sense whatsoever. And I'm getting really angry and frustrated now because, again, I want things to make sense. But I've learned since that time, things don't have to make sense at all. I'm okay learning how afterwards, okay? but I'm not in that frame of mind yet. Third night in a row now, I start having a vision and I just go, now, why did I think something was trying to talk to me? Well, I'd had a lot of experiences throughout my life and it wasn't the first time that I'd received guidance, but this is the first time it had like smacked me in the face. And I said, why do you keep showing me these things? And it said, because you still need confirmation. And what it was saying was, you still need to know that you can trust me. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that, that's true. That's right. And it said, what do you need? And I knew what I needed because I was pretty much dead broke and all my bills were due in six days. I said, I need $1,600. And it said, you know, you know that ring you have in your drawer? And it wasn't a question. It was a statement. I had been engaged. The engagement fell apart. I'd been given the ring back and they'd thrown it in my dresser drawer. And in fact, I had tried to sell it for far less than what it was worth when she gave it back and I couldn't sell it. So I just threw it in there. I said, yeah. It said, put an ad in the paper or sell that ring, put an ad in the paper on Tuesday, ask for $1,700. The ad will appear on Thursday and on Saturday, you sell the ring for what you need. I said, all right. So Tuesday comes around, I call the place the ad. I have $37 left in my, my account. The ad is $36. So it's an all-in bet. Well, all right. So I place the ad. And the ad does come out on Thursday. And I get a couple phone calls, nothing really serious. Friday, I have one woman calls up that wants to take the ring out and get it appraised without me being there. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to give you the ring and let you leave with it. Okay, sure. No, that's not going to work. And Saturday morning when I woke up, I felt terrified. Because now all the bills are due. I have to pay rent and child support and my car payment and the, I mean, it's, it's, it's all due. 
I try, and I have no more money left. The ad's expiring today. And about, I'm probably awake for about an hour and a half in this terrified mood before my phone rings. And it's this girl on the other end. And she goes, do you still have the ring? And I said, yeah. She goes, I don't have $1,700. I only have $1,600. Would you take that for the ring? And I go, yeah. She goes, I'll see you in about an hour. Sure enough, an hour later, she appears at my door, steps inside. Can I see the ring? I show her the ring. She goes, that's beautiful. She closes it up, puts it in her purse, hands me $1,600. Didn't have the ring appraised, right? Just hands me $1,600, says thanks. I never see her again. And it was like, oh my God. And at that time, that was really what stood out to me, right? That this was forecast and it unfolded exactly the way I was told. So you didn't need more proof than that. Well, oh, I did. Trust oh, me, you did. I need a whole lot more proof. I'm a doubting Thomas. I'm okay. not like, you know, <laughs> that like, wasn't enough for you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a former Marine. You got to keep me down that dirt road. <laughs> so, but it did become a cornerstone where I, I realized, okay, I can trust this voice. But here's what didn't dawn on me at that time. It was operating outside of time and space because it had to know ahead of time what book I was going to pull off the shelf. Right? It had to know before I went to the library that I was going to the library. It had to know what book I'd pull off the shelf. And it showed me what I was going to see before I saw it. Which means that and I don't think this is just me. I think we all have access to that. Right? That we are not time bound, not our spirits. Our bodies are time bound. But our spirits are just about limitless. So as an empathic being, you have these gifts to explore those possibilities, right? Just so what I would really recommend is just to say, I'm tired of holding myself back. I'm tired of letting fear rule the roost. And for me, that meant for three years, all I did was when there were two choices and one was frightening and one was comfortable, I made the frightening choice every time. I just kept walking into it. And that paid huge dividends. And that's that's kind of really the way these past. Oh, I got to tell this story. Do we have time? Okay. And this was only a couple of years ago. So this is like almost the end of the journey. This chapter of the journey, right? So I get to a point where I finally see guilt for what it is. And the way that happened was, you know, I, I don't know that I remember right off the bat, but I connected to that part of me that thought it's all my, it's my heart, right? My heart says, it's all my fault. And I'm like, what? Says so it's all my fault. And all of a sudden I realized that what it's, what it's saying is it's that, it's that little kid who not only did they suffer all the abuse and the pain and the trauma and the abandonment and everything else, but then they blame themselves for it. And it's that blaming ourselves for it, can, that self-convicted child, so to speak. And it just multiplies that pain exponentially. So it's bad enough that you suffered this and you suffered this and you suffered this and you suffered this. But the ultimate pain is that we make it our own fault. And it's it's not your fault, right? You're responsible because it's your life now. If you're listening to this, you're likely an adult. So now it's time to step into that new role as an adult. And you do that by reparenting that inner child. And one of those, those big things is it's not your it's not your fault, love. And if you're empathic, you've got a heart filled with love. And if you wonder why the world rejects you is, well, the world doesn't value love. It values money and power and those kinds of things. So don't take your cues from the world, right? Don't take your cues from the things around you. Just know that that's who and what you are at your core. And then more and more trust yourself to come from that place. And it's, I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. It's a scary process because you're gonna, you, everything that's not you is gonna die. And every one of those deaths is scary. 
But eventually you get reborn into this place, which is what I was referring to, where all of a sudden I realized, it, I, I'm not even sure how this happened. It was just, I fell in love with that heart that had brought me, the spiritual being, through all these adventures. It was so, it's so courageous it, and so beautiful and always willing to love and always willing to make the best of everything that it can in spite of everything that happened to it. And, and that's when I fell in love with the heart of the child within. Now, as the spiritual being who comes to earth, I know why I came because I was shown. I came because I was curious about the nature and depth of human suffering. And so I embodied along with an intuitive empathic soul and no memory of what came before. That doesn't sound the least bit familiar, does it? And so, and then we go on this journey, we go on this adventure. And as I come out the other end, I have my answer. And it really is those, it's the fear, guilt, and shame, right? And it's the guilt more than anything else. So, that process of for empaths of reclaiming your innocence and your authenticity and having a sense of courage to step into your own truth and to live from that that's really the journey bob you're amazing i i resonated with so much i mean everything with what you were saying and what what a beautiful message you have for the world and what a great way to end the show <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you very uh, thank much. Thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. Really, really inspiring. Amazing. And if anybody wants to find me or that book, they can find it at the, the laughingempath.com. I will leave a link also below in the show notes. Oh, perfect. I appreciate okay. that very much. Louisa, <laughs> it was a pleasure speaking with Actually, I, I did most of the talking, but... That was you. Were, you were great. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> Your beautiful presence is wonderful. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. If you liked this episode, please do subscribe.